Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The most mundane subdivision cul-de-sac that you could find, there was a house that, you know, a lot of bad stuff was happening. And the fact that it was like this perfectly normal, picturesque home with the perfectly normal two kids in, in suburbia, that scared a lot of people because it wasn't at the church, it wasn't in an abandoned warehouse, it was right next door. I'm Melissa, And I'm Hadley. We're two interior design editors obsessed with the paranormal. This Halloween, we're stepping away from the beautiful homes we usually write about to tell a different kind of story. From cursed cottages to abandoned estates, we're uncovering the twisted histories of America's most notorious homes. So lock your doors and leave the lights on. This is Dark House. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode two of Dark House. I'm Alyssa. I'm here with my co-host, Hadley. And if you're listening for the first time, basically what we're going to do here is tell you the stories of four real homes that are allegedly haunted. We've each picked two houses to research and report back on, and we're keeping them a secret from each other until the day we record. But Hadley is up first this week, and she's about to reveal our first house. So... Hadley, yes. are you going to tell me what house you picked? So do you need any hints? If you have a hint, I'll take a hint. Okay. Think sort of unassuming, maybe corn industry, if that's if that's something you know anything about. I can't say that I do. Okay. So to me, it feels like the quintessential like horror movie in a very like rural part of the country. So just, you know, regular old farmhouse pretty like tight-knit community. Is it like Kansas? Like I know. Yeah, like- yeah. Warm. Well, not literally Kansas, but you'll probably recognize it once I say it, but it very much shaped the American horror story. I would say the house itself fits within or maybe even defined the trope of an unassuming farmhouse that actually is a hotbed for hauntings and horror. So with that, I'm just going to go out and tell you, I'm doing the Velisca Axe Murder House. Oh, Axe Murder. Okay. So we're like really, we're going for it. Yeah. Which like, I don't like gore. So it's keeping myself on my toes here, picking um, this one. But I feel like if we're starting off with something that is like the classic, iconic Americana image, this is it. So. Well, if I can't sleep tonight, like you're Venmoing me for coffee tomorrow. Or like come sleep over because like me neither. Not that the sleepover will help, as you'll learn soon. You will wake me up in the middle of the night and be like, did you hear that? Yes, I will. And then I'm going to like clutch you and it's, we're just not going to sleep. Wait, so what did actually happen there? Because like, I know it's called like Villisca Murder House, but I don't really know how it got that name. Okay, well, you're about to hear the rest. But essentially, in 1912, this family of six and their two guests were murdered in their sleep with an axe. It's one of the most famous cold cases in American history, aside from like the Block Dahlia or something like that. Okay, so that's like super dark and very sad. 
another like haunting the place? So some of them might be, but I'll tell you the story and then you can let me know what you think. So with that, let's go to Iowa. We'll rewind about, you know, more than 100 years and go back to 1912. So the reason that it's called the Velisca Murder House is because it was named after the town. It is a small town. And when I say small, I mean like extremely small. In the 1910 census, it was about a little over 2,000 people. But basically, imagine this place that represents very like wholesome values, very conventional values. Um, I think of, you know, homeownership being really tied to the American dream because a homeownership is so rooted in this idea of safety and like your ticket to pursuing happiness. It was representative of this like culture and this very like community oriented place. And one of the things you said too about being really spread out, though it is definitely more rural and spread out than like you and I would consider because it's not like there's a subway next door. It's like they did have neighbors and it was super, um, it sounds like everybody looked out for each other. Now that you have sort of an idea of what the town looked like, let's talk about the actual house. It is apparently people like to deem it a Queen Anne, although if you Google what it looks like, to me, it's much more of just like a classic like wooden farmhouse. Yeah. Um, There is like a bit of a pitched roof, but um, it's a pretty basic layout and it almost looks like a dollhouse. You know how in in classic dollhouses- that makes it scarier, so thank you. I know, I just realized as I was saying that. But it kind of does where like if you bisected it, you would see like the one staircase and then like the basic rooms. And on the ground level, there's like a parlor room, which is sort of like a living room, I think, or maybe they used it also as a dining area. And then off to the side is like another extra room that was, um, it had beds in it, so it was kind of like a guest room, but it was also could be used as a sewing room or kind of, you know, to do housework. Um, And then upstairs- is a closet and the closet is, well, there were two closets, but in one of them, there was a door that led to the attic. So it's kind of like, have you ever stayed in a creepy old farmhouse where like you think you've seen every room in the house, but then look in the closet and there's a hidden door. And then all of a sudden you're in an extra like room upstairs. That reminds me of when we were interviewing Togue Thompson and what he was saying about just attics being inherently creepy. Was this house like new in 1912? Do you know when it was built? It was built initially in 1868 by this man named George Loomis. Well, it wasn't like a total new build. Huh. So it's it's a, it's a pretty old house. And in 1903, the Moore family bought the home. And the Moore family is comprised of six people, at least this nuclear one. So Josiah B. Moore was married to Catherine, or sorry, Catherine was his daughter. He was married to Sarah Montgomery. And not Catherine, um, but they had four kids. They had three boys and one girl. And Joe, which I kind of feel weird calling him Joe. It's like, okay, we're not buddies. You were but, friends. Um, yeah. I mean, I would be like, no. You're no, not on that vibes. level yet. No. So he was really well liked and he was pretty prominent within the town. They were pretty well off. He um, had a sort of like offshoot of the John Deere company. So it was like a franchise and they sold things like hardware stuff. And I also think they sold like farm equipment. Um, For the corn, obviously. Yeah. And then Sarah was um, really active in the church. And she assisted a lot with the like kid-oriented activities. So the Moore family was attending a church service on June 9th, 1912. 
it wasn't just your average Sunday. I think they had like a bunch of like special programs, one of them being um, a children's day. So Catherine Moore, who was 10 years old, was friends with two of the other little girls there that night. They were sisters named Lena Stillinger, who was 12, and her little sister Ina Stillinger, who was eight. Basically, I found a few different like narratives around why they were invited to sleep over at the Moore house. But the one to me that feels the most compelling is from the coroner's inquest. The witness who was speaking, her name was Blanche Stillinger, and she was the 14-year-old sister of the two girls. So she was also really young. But so she gets a phone call from Joe. Basically, they call the sister. They said, can they stay at our house tonight? Because they're from a neighboring town and they were supposed to stay with their grandma who lives in the town. Um, But she didn't come to the church services that night and they didn't want the girls to walk there alone in the dark. So Hmm. the sister was just like, yeah, I think that should be fine. Um, And gave her permission and whatever, the church program ends, they walk home. It's about 9.30 at night now and they probably get home around 9.45 to 10 based on the how far the um, church was from their house. Most of the newspapers say that they had milk and cookies before bed. So how, who, how would anybody know that? <laughs> well, that's what I'm wondering because when I read all of the like, you know, the crime scene. Oh, there was milk and cookies out? Well, but then I didn't find anything about milk and cookies being out. That was more just like, I don't know if someone at one point editorialized that or not. Maybe there was and it just wasn't as important as the other stuff, which you're going to hear is like, way creepier than anything that have to do with milk and cookies. The milk and cookies is throwing me off. It's because milk and cookies is so idyllic. And it's like, oh, you had this nice treat before you went to bed. But then I keep going. And at some point while they were asleep, everyone in the house was massacred. Fast forward to in the morning, their neighbor, Mary, she was alarmed at around seven to eight to see that they still weren't up and doing their normal routine. If I had a neighbor who would knock on my door every time I wasn't like up by eight, there would be a restraining order. We will know also too, like if, if somebody came looking for me every time I wasn't up by seven or eight, like it would be every fucking day. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, anyway, she she starts noticing that they're, you know, not up. And I think also though, it's probably hard for us to relate to the idea of like getting up and doing chores just because life is so different now. So she goes over there and she like tries to knock on the door and and see if anything's up. She lets out the chickens. I think maybe the chickens were like bugging her, like being squawking or something. And she like checks if the horses have been fed and they haven't. So she like, Oh, I didn't realize there was like animals. That's what I mean about the chore thing. Like, okay, it makes sense that they had like a lot to do if it was basically like living on a farm. So she like goes over there the doors are locked. So she tried to let herself in, um, which is also kind of weird to me. But anyway, it's a good thing that she did because when she goes back to her house, she calls um, Josiah's brother and his name is Ross Moore and um, his wife picks up. She's like, can you please send your, your husband over here? So they come over and he has like a set of keys and he uses a key that like opens the door. So it's pretty clear. And one of the things too in the coroner's um, inquest was like, are you sure there was not a key left on the other side? Or I think they were trying to figure out if there was a break-in. It was locked from the inside, like as if someone had locked it before going to bed. And what's creepy about this is that it's like something inside the house was like waiting. Mm, so stressed. I know, because well, especially too, like, I mean, I live in a small apartment, but even then I'm like, okay, open every shower curtain. I used to work at the mall. All right. So like sometimes I'd have to close the store. You're, you mm-hmm. get out late, you go to your car, it's in the big empty parking lot. 
you know the story like somebody's if i think they're they're told to check someone's waiting your car yeah. but i'm more so they're already in my backseat look in the trunk yeah I mean, it's like you you get in and you immediately lock the doors but then i'm like but i'm probably not but alone what if here. they're already with me uh, yeah honestly like my my gut reaction was was always just like turn on the car really fast and start driving like as if if i drive off like so fast that they'll fall over and won't kill me anyway <laughs> mine would be like have 911 already on the phone which i've done several times as i go look behind the shower curtain and then like hopefully don't Do you not hit 911 one time i did but i was little so i have yeah, you can get in trouble for that I did buy the babysitter. Um, <laughs> okay, locked from the inside. Yeah. Suspect. So, okay. I know. So he goes inside and he looks on the bottom level first and he notices immediately that it's very still. And he goes inside and he, um, you know, because it's a six-person well, family. Well, it's like if there's there's six people plus the two girls, You'd think it'd be lively be and it's summer. Like the kids should be out playing. Chores. Yeah, doing the chores like it's there. There's no sign of life. I guess is Ugh. the the reality of what he was facing. So he goes into one of the rooms, and all he sees um, in terms of like a, a human is an arm, <gasps> like kind of poking out of a bed sheet. Ew. And um, I know it's like really sad. And then he that's also all you need to know. Like once you see that, well, so that that's done. what he did. He was like, okay, something really awful has happened. And he also saw like the uh, an axe on the floor of the downstairs, like the guest bedroom. Okay. So they leave because they realize that they've just walked in on a murder crime scene. And then they call the town marshal and he comes and then he also kind of basically like everyone who they call has the same sort of reaction where they like see what they need to see. And they're like, okay, yeah, obviously yeah. something bad happened. Okay. But already there were too many people there. They did not secure the crime scene. They like let the brother go in. I get why he did. He like discovered it, but I'm pretty sure the well, neighbor was like- Well, and then, okay, like, if the marshal's the only um, like representation of law enforcement, he should go in, but then what happens? So let me just tell you what they think based on the evidence happened that night. Okay. So they think, they, they found in the attic, um, which like I said, like you can kind of only go through a hidden door. So that tells me like either someone like really did their homework while they were out of the house to figure out how to get around in a good hiding place or they knew what the house was like so okay wait sorry to get into the attic you have to go through a door that is small and hidden do you know in, what room that within a closet in? on the top <gasps> yeah no way yeah exactly so they find two cigarette butts on the floor which like gave them the impression that like someone was like up there hiding out before all of this on the floor of the attic thing. yeah but like i mean sure that's fine but my like my mind goes to how do we know like Josiah wasn't sneaking them because Smoking, like, his yeah. wife didn't want him to, you know? Right. Um, although I'm sure that would like waft downstairs. Anyway, that was one of the theories. And so because the ax was found in the um, the room on the bottom floor and it was left there, they think that um, the killer started in the parents' bedroom. So basically Josiah was like found face down. So he was probably sleeping on his stomach. He was hit with the blade of the ax, which was, he was like the only one that they did that with, which it was very like grotesque. And like, maybe this person had extra rage towards him. Okay. Um, so after they kill the parents, they went into the kids' rooms and like, I'm not going to like go into the details yeah, because no, it's I just, don't hear it. yeah. Um, but after that, he, they think he went back into the main bedroom to like do more damage. You could tell that his swing when he was like winding up to like 
throw the axe like the down. Impact? Yeah, but like it was, it hit the ceiling. The other side of the axe no hit way. the ceiling. There was such a, um, there was such a big dent that it had to be someone who was using a lot of strength. So he went hard up and down. Yeah, but I'm just pretty like shocked that a neighbor who was so kind of like in your business didn't hear anything. Okay, where were the chickens and the horses? Like there's, animals yeah. can tell you when a hurricane's like a natural disaster's coming. They definitely can tell you when spirits are around. I'm near certain they like go off if like a trespassers, if it was like somebody smart, somebody calculated who would like, like you said, if they, they would have to know they have to know the inside of the house to know how to get to the attic and be hiding up yeah. there. There's no reason why a criminal couldn't be smart enough to then like drug the chickens and the horses so that they're just like, they don't do anything. But I, just, I don't know. They did ask multiple times, did the doctor, they're like, did it smell like chloroform? And Is that how you drug a horse? Not necessarily a horse, but the people. Like oh, the, oh yeah, you, yeah, Like yeah. I think Ted Bundy did that where he would like put a cloth over them. Yeah, that's like oh. every classic like Lifetime movie. Yeah. So chloroformed. But they they kept saying like no, it didn't smell like any kind of chemicals. I, I would have been like going to the chickens and the horses and testing like I don't know how you do this, but like test their blood, test like whatever. Well, so it's nineteen twelve. I don't know if they could do that. I find that like these old photographs almost dehumanize situations like this because it makes it seem so removed in the past that like we can't yeah. really relate to them anymore. Totally. Um, but it also sort of, you know, spotlights the fact that like technology was not what it is today. I mean, this was a totally botched investigation. Some of the main people who visit the house now are like, you know, they're there to study the criminal law element of it and how messy it got so quickly and how this could probably have been solved had there been a more like, you know, professional team on the case. Um, so rewinding a little bit, it was clear that eventually the killer had made their way downstairs. And like, this is the part that I like really, that just like makes me sick to my stomach. All of it does, but this is just so horrific to me. They think that the only one who had defensive wounds was um, the older Stillinger sister, Lena. That's sad. And there were also signs and some evidence that led people to believe that the killer had sexually assaulted her. Ugh. I mean, I wish none of this happened, but that in particular, like, is just so sad. Yeah, I mean, this must have just rocked all of Villisca. Yeah, I mean, I think it completely changed the town on its own. I'm sure, like, recessions and other, and, like, World War One was about to happen. All of those things definitely impacted. It's like sort of um, fall from grace, if you will. But this, I think, is by far its biggest stain and kind of like loss of innocence. So anyway, the weirdest thing about the crime scene, aside from like the tragedy of it all, was that they covered all of the, they being the killer, had covered all of the windows with cloth and had covered all of the people with the bed sheet because it was like kind of weird that they had like covered most things with like linens of some kind covering the windows makes a lot of sense to me covering the bodies doesn't but then it's like okay is it somebody who knew these people and so when they came down from whatever amount of rage and violence like that that spell they were in yeah did they then think Ooh, i shouldn't have done this like let me at least do one small gesture well, like so guess what else was covered and you know i'm into this like wait i want to get wait yeah guess guess can I, one clue, one clue. Like, what room are we in? Um, the mirrors. Uh, the bears? The mirrors are covered. The paintings. Oh, the mirrors. The yeah, yeah, the mirrors. The you mirrors, okay. Exactly. So like, it's what almost would Hadley like, cover if she was scared in the house? 
So there's almost this like, I mean, if you're going to psychoanalyze that, he didn't want to be- To look at himself like, after to it. To look at himself. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so- wow. um I can't believe this is unsolved. I mean, like, I feel like we're halfway there already. Not that we're going to get an answer, but like, I just, well, they could have done so, so much more. I know. Well, so what happened is, like I said, like they did not secure the scene. It's just weird to me. Anyway, um, finally, the National Guard came in to cordon everything off, but it was like a little too late for that. They didn't take crime scene photos, although someone, I think the town pharmacist or druggist or something came with a camera and they all kind of like bullied him about it. They were like, why would you bring a camera? Because I think they thought it was like, you're, you're kind of like, you know, sensationalizing the crime. Okay. Just to give you like a sense of the magnitude of this crime. It was, I think, April of that year is when the Titanic sunk. So this was June. It was a couple months later. And finally, at this point, it knocked that off the front page. And there was even the New York Times article about it. Wait, yeah. So it's like a huge deal. Yeah. It's like a, it's national news. Um, and, uh, authorities pretty quickly pivoted the investigation into like looking at who was new in town and anyone who was passing through immediately became sort of like a suspect, which I find interesting because as you and I have both commented on, like someone either had to be pretty like calculated and um, like good at walking through houses they don't know, or they had to have kind of like known where to go if they were hiding in there before. So I'm not like totally sold on the fact that it's someone who's like not from the area. Wait a minute. Yeah. The doors were locked. Yeah. So like, I think Where the family- Where did they go? Like, oh, how the hell did they get out? How did they get out if both doors, like how, I don't know how many doors- Could they have house, jumped out like, of a window? I mean, I couldn't find anything about like if a window was open, but like- locked, yeah. It's very possible that they snuck in. They left the same way they snuck in because it was not through the door. If the door was locked or, or the murderer was still in there and didn't- make it out you know like it was somebody yeah. in the in the eight people that's, that's why I was saying like why didn't they look into that here's another thing that's really interesting Sarah Moore the wife had the least amount of damage to her head there's a million reasons why that could be it could be that like the person who was killing them didn't actually want to like torture them which I find hard to believe but maybe he just wanted to make sure they were dead maybe he was like particularly cautious with her I don't know well I'll tell you something else how else can you lock the door if not from inside? You have a set of keys. Yeah, from the outside. And who had the set of keys? Brother, brother. The brother, which like we already said, the person must have, like if they were hiding inside, the person must have known the house. We also already said, what a weird thing to cover the bodies. So yeah. maybe, um, like I said, if it was somebody who knew them and then kind of fell into this instant moment of regret when they came down from whatever high, if you want to call it that. And I don't really know anything about like actually taking care of animals, but like <laughs> maybe the animals are familiar with him so they don't flip out. Yes, that's actually a really good point. But like, so if the brother spent a lot of time there, if the brother has helped with the animals someone familiar. With the farming, someone familiar so that they didn't flip out when it happened. Okay, so we're obviously making up these like wild theories, but I do just want to be clear that none of the investigators or any of the reports that I actually found thought that it was this brother Ross, nor any of his other many siblings for that matter, because Joe did have a lot of siblings. Yeah. I'll tell you quickly, because I want to get to the haunted stuff, obviously, because that's what we're here for. So let's move on to the main suspects. Here's the thing. This case is freezing cold and every single suspect essentially led to a dead end. So all I'm going to do is say the names of the main suspects and then give you a little one-liner about each to paint a picture of why they were even sort of under the limelight here. So 
First up, we've got traveling minister George Kelly, who was sus. In fact, he confessed to the crime by saying that an entity had lured him to the house and told him to, quote, unquote, slay utterly. But they quickly found evidence that proved he couldn't have done it. What? Yeah. So next up, we've got another unpleasant dude called S.A. Andy Sawyer. And he was looking for work and traveling and paying as he went throughout the country. And at this point, he's in a nearby town during this time period. And he got a job from a bridge foreman who was immediately weirded out by the guy because he didn't say much at all. But then like in the days after the murder, he became like super obsessed with it. And anytime he'd did talk, he would like bring it up. Also, because they were doing like manual labor, they were using axes and like he would sleep with an axe at night, which I think is what? like really weird. Anyway, he was raving being like, I'll cut your goddamn head off. And like he would, yeah, so he had like a temper. He was really weird, this dude. Okay, so Sawyer being Sawyer does more bizarre stuff throughout the next week or so, but it turns out to be just another dead end. And next up, there's Henry Lee Moore, no relation who went on to be infamous in the area for murdering his own mom and grandma with an axe about a a year or so later. And so he's obviously bad, bad news, but not our guy in this crime. So moving on to the next suspect, Joe's ex-boss and Iowa state senator, so sort of high profile, I guess, Frank Jones. Um, He apparently was Joe's business rival and his daughter-in-law was rumored to be sleeping with Joe. So there are like two moving parts here that kind of, I guess, made him seem suspicious. Uh, but they didn't think he necessarily did it. They thought that he had hired yet another local axe murderer. I guess that was a like a common trend or something back then named Blackie Mansfield, which sounds to me like a stage name. But anyway, that guy turns out to have had an alibi as well. So they they didn't know who did it. But in 2017, another suspect was sort of brought forth um, in this book called The Man from the Train. Basically, it presents a really compelling theory about alleged serial killer Paul Mueller. So, like, maybe him? We'll never figure it out, but that's what makes it so scary is, like, there is no answer. Who locked the doors from the inside? Like, I want to know, and we're not going to know. And who covered the mirror? And that's what's going to keep me up all night (laughs) is the not knowing. Um, Also, like, do they have to say that somebody was probably hiding in the attic because it's like we already are afraid like we're already scared of the I, attic. Know, I already now won't go worse. up there so the case is unsolved yes and so then then what happens to the house so basically after all of this happened it only takes two years for another family to move in do we know if they knew about it but i mean if this was national news yeah like, it's you like can't everyone knew exactly so the first people to move in after the moors were the geesemans a family of five. Um, And according to the article that I read in the Grand Forks Herald, the dad, John, moved into the barn after sleeping just one night in the house. I don't know, something about the men not being really welcome there in that space. Maybe they had marital problems. Maybe he was like a ghost forced him out. I don't know. But he didn't sleep in there anymore. Um, But they just bought the house together. So like if it were marital problems, like work it out. Anyway, years later, um, his granddaughter and her husband and their kids, they're called the Friggins, which I love that last name. Yep. Um, and his name was also John, the husband. And after a few nights, he like stopped sleeping there too. So I don't know where he went. Weird family tradition where the men just like flee, I guess. But I don't know if he also just like started sleeping in the barn or if like, 
I don't know, some couples do that where they just have separate bedrooms. So it could be like totally normal, but I just found that a little bit noteworthy. Also, it sounds like during that time period, they occasionally would rent out the house. So they had some renters, Homer and Bonnie Rittner. Bonnie woke up one night and said that she saw a man holding an ax near their bed. Mm. Me, I'm like, okay, I think that was a nightmare, but maybe like no one else has ever reported that. Um, But then the husband, Homer, he said that he started to hear like footsteps coming up and down the stairs. And eventually, since they were renters, they had an easier out and they just eventually left. Um, And then in the early 70s, there were other renters and other family. Um, They moved out because their young daughters would complain about hearing little kids weeping. And then they would like find their clothes thrown all over the place. So then I'm going to tell you a little more about the current owners later. But for now, all I'm going to say is their names so you know who I'm talking about. They're Darwin and Martha Lynn. So in the 90s when when they bought the place, um, they kind of like, they wanted to turn it into a museum and they're super into it for the like historic reasons. I actually talked to Martha Lynn on the phone yesterday and she told me a bunch of stuff about the house because I wanted to hear from someone who's actually been there and and who better to ask than the owner. But her husband, Darwin, um, when they first opened it, they weren't necessarily like opening it to make it like an attraction for like that dark tourism part, they really initially just wanted to honor the family. Mm-hmm. And um, Martha's mother actually like knew the Moors. And basically they, they had a personal connection. They're born and bred Iowans. Um, both of them were farmers. And before they like pivoted to um, this, like, I guess you would call it the tourism industry. But Martha told me that when her husband first talked to someone who asked if they could do a paranormal investigation, he was like, sorry, repeat yourself, because he didn't know what the word paranormal was. I could tell genuinely that she was into this because there was interest around it. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like she was like, here, I can make money off of like their suffering. It was all about actually respecting them. So anyway, like as they start noticing people are interested in it, they were pretty involved in that and they would give tours. And um, it kind of like happened organically where they would like have a few people in and eventually this lady brings her daughter in her young daughter and the little girl, he notices the little girl like tug at his mom and say, um, or her mom and say, can I go into the dark room? And um, she was like, like, uh, okay. And basically that room was the room that the Stillinger daughters were in. Um, So anyway, Darwin started to notice a pattern where a lot of little kids would go over there. He would also notice that they would snap at something that wasn't there and be like, stop pushing me or something like that. You would even see little kids like go into that room and either like look under the bed or under the covers and play peekaboo oh, with no. nothing. No. Yeah. No, no, mm-hmm. no, no. Yeah. The other thing too that's interesting is um, I, I mean, this could totally just be like fabrication and lore, but apparently something in the, in the, um, that's like a known folktale around the area is that there's a train that still passes through. Cause I mean, like I, I mentioned earlier, it's basically the train depot. The, the train is still there. The tracks are still there and people still pass through, but it doesn't stop. It's not like the hub it was. And so it passes, there's one that passes through at 2 a.m. daily or nightly. And um, a, people think that the train's whistle stirs up these like residual events. Um, wow. And they've reported like a fog that like starts in the primary bedroom and then drifts throughout kind of like repeating repeating the events of, of that night, which like, to me feels like completely in line with the way that you think of like any type of, of trauma. I don't know if a trauma like this can ever be resolved. 
anyway, that's, that's one of the things. So to me, I don't know if that's actually true, but it, it sounds like a way for us who are alive to process this like past horror. So when I spoke with Martha on the phone, I asked her about her own experiences at the house. And it seems to me like she does believe to a degree, but well, she didn't say like straight up, I think the house is haunted. She was just telling me like she's had some stuff happen and she's not really sure what. What kind of things has she experienced? So she's felt like, you know, things tugging on her shirt. She's like seen objects move. One of the common things to do here is leave toys for the ghosts of the dead children to play with, which is like, I guess a nice gesture, but also like really weird. Sorry, Martha um, and Darwin would do that or like they would, people coming through on tours. People coming in through would do it. Although when they bought the house, Martha like refurbished it to be a, an exact replica of what the home would have looked like um, in 1912. Um, wow. Again, because she's sort of like, you know, a history buff who has a lot of like pride in this town and wanted to like make it a tribute to them. But then it also like, that's obviously really creepy when you go into this house that clearly is a time capsule of a different era and it's like, but then all around it, you see like more modern stuff, including the toys that people leave today. Oh, that's, I can just picture it. It sounds so jarring. Like it's really jarring. It's like dissonance where you look at something and you're like, that doesn't look quite right. Um, so the other thing that she said was, um, that she had like, no, not like being pushed in a bad way, but like, just like thing, like, things touching and someone else came out of the house once with like scratches on their back. So there's like, and, and I said to her too, I was like, honestly, it sounds like whatever is there, if there's something there is probably the spirit of like a victim. And so mm-hmm. it's not, or if it's like a sweet little kid who just is like playing is like what I said. And then she kind of like, I expected her to be like, yep, exactly. Like, it's actually like great place. Come stay. But what she said was, I've had some things there that are not exactly a peaceful energy. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. So, and she said, I don't know if it's the murderers. And she wasn't saying it like she genuinely thinks that. We were just sort of like, you know, chatting. But Mm -hmm. she said it in a way that made me think like, again, it brings me back to like, maybe the person who did it did die that night. I don't know. Probably not. If it was a murderer who was just passing through the town and wasn't there at all, unless it like, attached to a different person and then like came in the house later why would that be stuck there yeah like you killed them are you here unless yeah like we were saying the person felt guilt afterwards everybody agrees at least that some of these spirits are energies that remain are children childlike which I think makes sense but yeah I don't know like to what you were saying about like obviously I think it's you know Martha and Darwin sound wonderful and I'm glad you got to talk to her and it sounds like they've done a really great job um, honoring the family and the history of the home. And I think it is cool that she was able to like restore it and, and, you know, keep the decorations in line with that time. But it's also just like an added layer of scary because yeah. it's like time stood still and thinking of like, it, it matches the town but I just imagine that I would set foot across the like town line, town border, whatever, and immediately just feel the energy because there is something scary about the emptiness. And yeah, then what, that like, used so, to be the site of life and joy and like, you know, promise and hope and all of the stuff that is so tied to our American values and like family life. And the fact that you can tell it was once there, but isn't now 
um, and not that that isn't there now. I'm sure there are still like happy families there, but I mean like in, in specifically that home. The other thing that like stood out to me about her too, I did ask her and it ended up being like less creepy than I thought it would be. But so in The Haunting of Hill House, the book, um, Mrs. Dudley, who's the caretaker, she says, and this line always stands out to me. She says, I, I leave before dark comes. So there won't be anyone around if you need help to like the scary house. And it reminded me of that because she doesn't ever sleep there. She hands the keys over to whoever has rented out the place for the night. And like doesn't spend the night with them, so I'm like, well, why I won't think that you? Says something though, like if the homeowner's not going to stay there, like, yeah. And she said she has before, but now she doesn't need to. But still, I'm like, I think there's more to it than that. That is the story of the Velisca Axe Murder House and the accompanying hauntings that have lingered still. Thank you for telling me that. I'm <laughs> sure I'll be up all night. Yeah, welcome uh, to the club. I mean, it's also just so interesting because I feel like, you know, we have a couple more homes that we're going to talk about, but I just feel like this one's so classic American and like, and too relatable. It's yeah. too relatable to think like, you know, you go to bed and you know you, the doors are locked, but like that doesn't mean everything's safe. Yeah, like what if what you should be afraid of is actually in the room with you? Inside, Yeah. So many things. And where did the milk, milk and cookies come back? Like, yeah. Just, like, why, did, why was I that entering the story? I can't let that go, but like. Well, like, and Santa, big man coming down the chimney. No, I know. I mean, Ooh. obviously, like, the first thing you think of when you think of milk and cookies for, for some reason yeah. is Santa. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that to me is super fascinating about this house is that it represents, you know, this sort of like archetype of what, if it's not a haunted house, then like. A, where a, where a like true crime yeah, um, it's like situation movie. would go down. Horror movie 101. It's like yeah. everything's great until it's not. Exactly. It's this like cute farmhouse with a happy family and then all of a sudden um, it's not so safe anymore. But like if you think of, you know, like The Witch, which is a more recent film, but it's still this like old rickety farmhouse or the movie Misery, you know, that Stephen King book where like creepy, but kind of modest, but also comfortable, just like a good, normal family house. When you were telling me this story, like I didn't have to Google the house. I didn't have to Google the family. I didn't have to Google the town because I've seen so much of the representation of this style of everything from the house to the town the whole setting has been used in like multiple movies and multiple shows and so like I already have the picture painted in my mind you know exactly exactly which I think is like because it was such a big deal at the time of the event too and it gained so much national news coverage this like it obviously secured its place in American imagination and like as Hollywood was starting to take off this was sort of, you know, probably a lot of like source material for, for people researching sets and stuff. And so yeah, um, I know you don't know who our guest is today, neither do our listeners, but I wanted to bring someone on who could really speak to what goes into designing a truly terrifying fictional haunted house. Wait, is it Martha Lynn? No, she did do a very good job with the Axe Murder House. So maybe she has a future in this, but I'm talking like actual film set. So a TV show actually to be more specific. And it's one of your favorites. Wait, are we talking to somebody? Are we going to talk to somebody from Supernatural? Yes, we are. We're going to talk to Shut Jerry up. Wanick. Oh my God. I almost thought you were going to say Jared um, Padalecki almost died, but wait, <sighs> I'm so excited. Yeah. That's, so Jerry's like the set He's designer? the production designer. Okay. Yeah. So- 
to give you a little background about him, Jerry studied fine arts before getting his start in Hollywood and went on to be the production designer on all 15 seasons of Supernatural. For anyone who doesn't watch the show, to paint a picture of how impressive that is, the pilot alone had 5.69 million viewers. There are 17 novels based on the series, and there's even a national holiday dedicated to Supernatural in Texas. Plus, he dabbles in interior design, which obviously, Alyssa, you and I are going to be able to geek out with him about that. And then he's also from the Midwest. So given the location of Velisca, I know that we're going to have plenty to talk to him about. Yeah. So I actually just finished binging the whole show. And and so that is why I recognize the name as soon as you said it from like seeing the credits like a million times in a row. But I'm so excited to talk to him. I have so many questions. For anybody who hasn't seen it, it's about these two brothers, paranormal investigators, except the term that they use is hunters. And it's not just ghosts. They're like, they hunt everything, every type of supernatural being, hence the name supernatural. But they travel a lot through the Midwest. They like, you know, troll the newspapers and, you know, websites and whatever. And they're looking for like just regular crimes reported to the police all over the country that are unsolved, which actually like this is this really ties back yeah, to the exactly. The crimes are unsolved, but they go in thinking, what if the suspect or whoever's behind this isn't actually a human or a person? It's some type of supernatural situation happening. But essentially, like, it fits because it's like, okay, Sam and Dean could have rolled through Villisca and been like, they haven't found the axe murder yet. Like, and the doors were locked from the inside. So why don't we go and just check the place out and see, like, what's happening? I wanted to talk to someone who could speak to the, like, behind the scenes elements of setting that scene and then also who like isn't necessarily like a firm believer in ghosts though I guess we'll find out if that's true about him or not you haven't really watched the show that much right no I haven't it's so good you have to watch it it's pretty believable in terms of like the settings and the backdrops and all that but to your point about Martha was able to like filled it with antiques and stuff yeah I don't know I'd love to ask Jerry like where do you buy spooky props like does he totally. go antiquing? Like, I just have so many questions for his job. Like, how much of it is actually, like, interior design-based versus researching folklore? Like, totally dying to talk to him. So let's go talk to Jerry. Hi, Jerry. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. For anyone who doesn't know, can you explain to us what a production designer does? A production designer is basically responsible for telling the story visually, meaning like whatever the writer um, establishes as a location, it is my job to build that and to make it feel like you're actually in that location. And it was really important on Supernatural because... In Supernatural, we have these two uh, brothers that are basically hunting ghosts and demons across the country. So every week, they're hopping their 67 Impala called Baby, and they go out and seek this paranormal activity. And so there is this sense of travel. And for me, that was a huge challenge because if you're doing normal TV series, Normally you have a hospital, a police station, or some place where it's called a standing set where, you know, a couple of days out of every episode, you're in that standing set. For the first seven years, we had no standing sets. So every week it was the art department's job 
to make you believe we were going to Louisiana, we were going to Wisconsin and what have you. So um, really when a production designer does his job to the best of his ability, you kind of don't know he did anything at all. You're trying to make the most realistic situation, no matter how wild the script is, you have to make that viewer believe that you're actually there. And it's interesting because when you're making your viewers suspend disbelief for something that's about, you know, paranormal activity or folklore that we typically don't associate with, you know, realism, that's particularly challenging. So speaking of belief and disbelief, before we go any further, can we ask if you personally believe in the paranormal or where you fall on that spectrum? The paranormal, the whole energy, the whole, you know, concept of it, I am sort of neutral because it's one of those things you can't disprove. But, um, you know, looking back at the whole history of ghosts and possessions and all the other things, um, it's more of our fascination with, and it's on the same lines as many religions, is because we are mortal and we don't know really how this all began and we don't know if there's something after. So there's something within all of us that wants to believe that there's something after this. So the existence of ghosts, spirits, all that other stuff is a verification of those tendencies. And I don't know if we'll ever know, but you know that's a, that's a great mystery. It's kind of part of our humanity. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of the the dichotomy that um, this genre and horror and and thrillers and all of that presents, where it's strangely comforting, even though the intent is to scare you. There's also something comforting about it being a fictional universe where you can bring people back and it sort of defies these laws of nature that we can't do as people. But when you're watching it, it presents you with this sort of hope. Like when people pass on in a house, but they die of natural causes, I think, you know, people tend to believe that they're friendly ghosts. You know, it's like, you know, I know people that, you know, talk to their mothers and talk to family members, not that they're afraid of them. They just have sort of a comfort knowing that, you know, um, you know, like my mother passed away in our family home, you know, and um, I think my sister felt a very strong connection, didn't want to leave that house because she thought, you know, my mom's, you know, spirit was still there. And um, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of normal. I think, you know. Definitely. That's well put. Whether it's grappling with a loss or wanting to figure out a mystery but not being able to, like with the Velisca Axe murder house, a lot of times when a murder is unsolved, who do you ask but the people who were there? And if they're not there, then it makes sense that there's this sort of like, you know, desperate attempt to connect with them through some other sort of like spiritual quest if it can't happen like face to face. And that's what's so nice about shows like Supernatural. There's always a resolution. The monster gets caught. That's not true in real life, as is the case again with the Velisca house. And that one was particularly interesting because when they came to investigate, all the doors were locked from the inside. You know, the house in a normal neighborhood. And that's how those questions, the unexplainable, again, because we want the answer. You know, otherwise you're going to live in, in fear. Most people have seen a similar looking house to the Velisca X murder house, and they've seen a similar town and a similar neighborhood. We've seen it on TV and in movies, especially in Supernatural. There are so many episodes in small Midwestern towns that look just like it. So there's this quote uh, from your showrunner, and it's, I'll just read it to you. It's the idea that horror can happen in your own backyard. 
how many viewers have to worry about the vampire in the gothic castle. So instead of, you know, the house that you see when you're passing on the street that looks so obviously haunted because it's abandoned or it's, you know, looks unsafe to be inside or something like that isn't always the scariest place necessarily. So on that note, what are your thoughts on just the house next door being actually potentially the most haunted? Uh, That's a good question. And we actually proved that um, to our, or our viewers proved that to us because when we started we basically went the gothic route and i love i love gothic cuz it's fun to do it's got all that texture and i i just love the feel of that stuff you know and um then on season 3 we did this the, the most mundane subdivision cul-de-sac that you could find but there was a house that was a lot of bad stuff was happening and the fact that it was like this perfectly normal you know, picturesque home with the perfectly normal, you know, two kids in, in suburbia, that scared a lot of people, you know? It was like, because it wasn't in the attic, it wasn't at the church, it wasn't, you know, in an abandoned warehouse, it was right next door. And that the house next to that is probably a carbon copy of it because so many of these, you know, like subdivision homes are created to just be like easy to build. Yeah, it was exactly that. So you look at that house and you look at your house and you go like, okay, what, is it, you know, but, you know, we, we stayed true to the, um, whole mythology. Like I think in that particular instance, that house might've been built on a cemetery or there was something that happened there that was traumatic. And, and, uh, the other thing that I think gave our show real staying power is there was an edict when we started that every story we told had to be traceable back to mythology, theology, or folklore. You know, that got you know, people really interested, you know, because it wasn't just something that somebody, a name that somebody made up. It was actually um, uh, something they can research. So it, you're basically creating, uh, you know, an environment where it's uh, interactive. And uh, that that's uh, that was important. Yeah. Or maybe it's like a nursery rhyme that they were read as a kid and they didn't know the dark history behind it or, or something like that. So just kind of running it back to having everything based in mythology and anybody who's watched the show, like you said, you guys kind of kick things off with a really gothic feel. And I think those first few seasons, even just the first few episodes were super deeply rooted in kind of classic um, folklore. So I was just wondering, I mean, obviously the writers had to do probably a lot of heavy research to make sure that felt really accurate, but what did you have to do to make sure the sets felt um, realistic? Our default is always heavily layered, older, you know, the peeling paint, the cobwebs, the mold, all that textural stuff, you know, because that immediately, like as soon as you open that attic door, that cellar door, and there's stuff dripping down the walls and there's cobwebs, you you just don't want to go in there. It's like any great horror show. It's like, don't open that door. But of course you do, right? Because it's, you're curious and it's human nature to, to look what's behind the door. So, I mean, um, I have an incredible paint crew and construction crew that, you know, really the layers and the textures, um, also the light source, you know, usually, 
you want to be sort of heavily backlit. So you always have to create opportunities for your cinematographer to give you some nice backlight. We also had quite a bit of atmosphere smoke in a lot of those places. So you kind of, it's a little bit hazy, so you're not totally revealing, you know. Uh, another uh, a trick that is um, we found early on is you got to be careful not to show the whole monster because then all of a sudden, you know, once you study them and it's in like if they're in too bright a light, then you're going to go, yeah, no, that's a that's a that's well, a that's similar to the, the idea, too, of just like human nature. Once you fully understand something, then the fear dissipates a little bit. Right. Exactly. How did color um, come into play with just kind of everything you did? Were there any colors that you guys like touched on a lot for any type of reason or were there any colors you stayed away from? Um, the, the color scheme really depended on sort of the storyline, but for, let's say for 75% of those, the, the stories were fairly, let's say Gothic based in that sort of frame of mind. I really stuck to jewel tones, you know, so they're more crimsony and, and, um, you know, deeper colors as opposed to primary colors. When I did primary colors, I was trying to make a statement and sometimes it was for comic relief or, um, I love Americana. I mean, like if anybody that's watched the show, like my motels and gas stations and all that are, are purely Americana because it's also kind of timeless. But when you're doing like any of the churches, then I go into the deep reds and the really, you know, the emerald greens and, you know, a little purple and, and, but it's, it's really uh, deeper uh, jewel tones that it seemed to evoke a little more mystique and uh, so that was the that palette. I also am attracted to Americana and the kitsch of a motel room. One of my favorite hotels is the Madonna Inn in California. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's incredibly oh, kitschy. And yeah, you have it's yeah. it's great. I mean, the tennis courts are like turquoise and bubblegum pink, yeah. and all of the rooms have a different theme, and it's completely over the top. And there's something almost eerie about. And it almost feels like if if a room could be a clown laughing at you like that feels like it to me um so a question about kitsch and also a lot of layers and antiques and layering and stuff um what do you think makes those things inherently creepier than a blank space first of all the madonna inn which you mentioned that was my first kick at the can as soon as i you know got into this and we started going a little farther afield with our themes and stuff, that's the first place I thought of. So I immediately had, you know, our people research would give me every inch of the Madonna in. I think the creepiness uh, lies in sort of like the history. And I I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's something, it's also a little bit off because, you know, our motels that were from the 40s, 50s, 60s were also pretty perfectly maintained for the most part. And it was like, so now you're kind of like in this weird space, you know, like it's it's kind of familiar, but, you know, probably something you saw in a magazine or something, in a, uh, but never really walked into. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Even hearing that the current owner of the Velisca Axe Murder House redecorated it to feel authentic to the home style as it would have been in 1912 just adds to that eeriness. But obviously... It helps when you're trying to create an experience, whether it's a haunted house vacation, I guess, if you want to call it that, or a TV show. Was it challenging for your team to create spaces that evoke a specific moment in time? You know, the the hard and fast rule is you can't just have like a cool bedspread 
or a cool lamp. I mean, if you're going to push that, then you got to have the whole room play together. I can't stand looking at something and all of a sudden, you know, oh, isn't that a cool lamp? Yeah, but there's no reason for it to be there, you know? So if you're going to go 50s or 60s, then everything's 50 and 60s, you know? It's always got to be part of an ensemble that you actually feel like you're of that period or in that place. Being different for the sake of being different is is wrong. Now, if you want to be different and have it work, when it works with everything, if you can create an environment where it feels at home, now you're now it's now it's cool. Where did you find all of these props? Like, did you source from antique shops? There are uh, certain ones in Vancouver that we went to on a, on a regular basis. But so we did a lot of stuff online also. You know, we did eBay, we did Craigslist, uh, because a lot of times we're looking for stuff that people were throwing away, you know, especially because a lot of times uh, we had to destroy it. You know, like uh, that's another reason why, you know, there's a lot of shows that can go into people's houses and shoot. But, you know, we're going to go in there, we're going to break something. Because we always had stunts, special effects, visual effects. So you always have to have at least three. And what we would do is the buyers would go out and find some really cool pieces. And then we would draw off of that. And and then we would manufacture our own because we had to have, you know, control over it. Can we also just talk about the wallpaper for a sec? Because you guys had so many amazing wallpaper moments on the show. Yeah, uh, thanks, um, Alyssa. The, The wallpaper, I mean, I love wallpaper. I mean, there's phases in our history where every house had, like, it was all wallpaper. And again, I think there's never a time when it shouldn't be around. It's just, again, judiciously and how it plays with everything else. You know, it's funny because a lot of wallpaper rooms, especially if you're going pretty bold, scare the hell out of you until you start hanging stuff to break it up. You know, people will freak out and they'll start tearing it down before... You know, you put up your artwork or you put things like to break up the pattern or you see the doors, you know, you know, it's like, so you got to, you got to just get complete it, you know, hang up your art and then step back and, and then look at it again. So, yeah, I think kind of what you were saying earlier too, about how everything in the room contributes to tell the story together and that nothing in isolation can do the job on its own. And one of the reasons I think that wallpaper has this sort of creepy association is, if you're inheriting an old home or you're moving into a place and you see this really outdated looking wallpaper and it's also dirty looking, you immediately want to like tear at it to bring it down, which also kind of evokes images from that short story, The Yellow Wallpaper. It's a feminist um, short story about how like being repressed essentially and the yellow wallpaper is suffocating her. So I think we have these cultural associations around design and they all you know, bring up very specific images. So if it has that reputation or someone has that personal connection to it, then it can feel very creepy. However, I do think there is a wallpaper renaissance right now about reclaiming some of those things, turning them into something else. Maybe it's pairing it with a photograph that's hyper modern or something um, that gives it a whole new life and feel. Obviously, when you're, you know, decorating a set and it's in the context of let's pretend it's in a powder room that, you know, Bloody Mary is going to pop out of, then it's going to be really creepy. However, it can be really awesome and fun and cool. And I think that's kind of the the magic of design is that you can transform pretty much anything. Yes, I agree 100%. And I think you're right. I think it's 
you know, goes back to like your grandmother's house or something or, or museums or stuff that, um, you know, evokes Edgar Allan Poe or something, you know, because almost all of that stuff that was from like even the 20s and 30s is all been reissued. And some of those patterns are just beautiful. Um, fully agree. I also feel like I just keep sitting here thinking about like it just comes back to the fear of the unknown. So whether you don't know if you're going to love this wallpaper after like a month or you don't know what's hiding in your closet, like we're all just scared of what we can't, um, which is interesting that just fear is fear. You know, but it's, it, you know, like reading a because we did a lot of research and stuff like that. And it goes back to, um, you know, the primitive man when, you know, like even hearing rustling in the bushes and not knowing what that was. Again, you know, as science proved and, and explained what things were, then we were afraid of less. But now science has gone so far that, you know, when I was growing up, there were like, what, seven planets? Now there's seven billion or trillion. You know what I mean? And and now you can't say there isn't another life form. You know, there's just no way you can definitively say any of that. So I, I think, you know, you just keep an open mind. You, you try to live in the moment and do the best you can today. And That actually just reminded me. You told me a really good story about Elvis's potential ghost paying you a visit when I first reached out to you about this podcast on the phone. And I promised Alyssa that I would ask you to tell it again. Would you mind sharing? Okay. Going back to part of my belief or not belief in um, the paranormal, um, I used to date this girl in Los Angeles when I lived there. And um, she lived in one of Elvis's old apartments. And all of Elvis's furniture was in the apartment. You know, this is where he stayed with his then girlfriend, Linda Thompson. So they were both gone. My girlfriend and I stayed there all the time. And one night I just got up in the middle of the night and went to the bathroom. And as I walked down the hallway, just felt this really weird sensation. And it was right in front of the picture of, I don't know if, if you guys remember, but at one point, Richard Nixon, then president, hired Elvis to spy on John Lennon. And they actually hired him as an agent to spy on other rock and rollers uh, that were doing drugs. And, and they thought Elvis wasn't? Yeah. Well, that's the whole irony, right? Because that's what he died from. The original photo of, of Richard Nixon and Elvis in the Oval Office was on the wall in that, in that hallway. But um, to tell you how, how creepy, I mean... It was the most over-the-top, incongruous groupings of furniture, like big fanned wicker chairs inside for the dining room, this big urn in the middle of the room uh, of the sectional with all these ostrich plumes. But the kicker was every window was tinfoiled over because Why? Colonel Parker... Uh, wanted to squeeze as much out of the golden goose as he could. So, you know, he, he was being supplied uh, by doctors with downers and speed. So he never wanted to know what time of day it was. So by taking all the dark. natural light away. I was literally going to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty bad. Very sad, you know, because Elvis was by all means a nice person. He was just like a, a very naive, small town kid with huge talent then, you know, that's where he ended up and eventually it killed him. Did your girlfriend remove the tinfoil or was she also into the who knows what time it is vibe? At the time, the tinfoil was still there actually because she was just sort of subletting it from 
her best friend, Linda. Yeah, I mean, regardless of whether or not that was like Elvis was watching you like walk to the bathroom or something, just the yeah. idea of being in a place with, you know, steeped in that much history and energy of something not being quite right is going to be creepy, especially when the lights are off and it's you're yeah, groggy. It, it was a pretty creepy little, you know. Was it like a chill? Yeah, you know, it just, I just, it, well, it was kind of like a chill because it stopped me in my tracks. I just went, you know, kind of, you'd kind of shudder and go, oh, what was that? It was definitely a thing. You know, I mean, it definitely was a, a thing I'll never forget. Maybe Elvis has not left the building he might not in that have. particular apartment. Might not have. He had some uh, a gunshot um, hole in the wall because if he didn't no. have something on TV, he liked his handguns and he actually shot through the TV and then it went into the wall. I want to go to this apartment. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it sounds so interesting. I don't know if the people that are in there now have any clue that, you know, Elvis used to hang there. Insane. Thank you so much for sharing that story and everything else that you shared with us today. Um, before we let you go, just two more quick questions. You guys published a book that kind of looked at the sets over 15 seasons. Is that something that like fans can buy? Yes, it's um, called 15 Years of Supernatural, and it's uh, by Insight Press uh, out of San Francisco. It is available online, and it's 397 pages, and it's got 854 images. There's a foreword by me and by Eric and Bob Singer. The boys have a little a piece in there, and the rest is basically just, it's just imagery. And um, we tried to do a cross between you know, the sets and also the actors within the sets. I don't know if you're able to talk about this, but there's been news that there's going to be like a supernatural prequel in the works. So if you are able to talk about it, is that something that you would like want to sign up to be a part of? Absolutely. You know, I mean, um, no, I immediately, uh, you know, talked to Jensen and to Robbie Thompson, who's a a brilliant writer. Uh, But we'll see when that happens. I'm committed to do a show called Motherland, which I'm very excited about. Uh, it's with uh, Amanda Tapping. She is a wonderful director, a great person, and my crew just loves her. And um, it's a really creative take on witches. Ooh, that sounds very much in our wheelhouse as viewers, too, so we'll definitely have to watch. This has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Wow. That was amazing. I'm obsessed with Jerry. I know, me too. You don't realize the thing he was saying about like how they break stuff and you need multiple. Oh yeah, for the continuity they need. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, okay, of course he couldn't just like hit up some antique store. Yeah. Because for like the other takes, it wouldn't work. Yeah. I also was super, I mean, I was really glad that he was also equally as obsessed with the Madonna Inn. That Elvis story. Holy. I know. I was not expecting that. Well, especially like I didn't expect to hear that the house was or the apartment was exactly how he would have left it. When I hear Elvis, I'm like, that's so long ago. Like, how was his apartment just exactly the same? And also, I always forget that Linda Thompson, that's Brody Jenner's mom, for anybody who doesn't know, dated Elvis. Yeah, it really wasn't that long ago at all. No. And so like, it just, it all comes back to like, you know, we were talking about 1912 and all that, like all of this stuff isn't that old. Well, and also like he was talking about, you know, the peacock feathers and all of the sort of like 
I would say, very character-rich decor throughout Elvis's apartment, you know, odd. And so when you're in a place where like the stuff feels off, you're like, okay, this is going to be creepy. But even when you look at the Velisca house, it's like, I don't know if it really matters what's in there. No matter what, if the house is still the same, I'd probably be creeped out. Like what Jerry was saying about like something captured in a photograph that you only get to like look back at it, not get to go like walk through. Yeah. I mean, because a a photograph like contains it to the past, like even the act of taking a photo is commemorating something that is no longer with us or at one point will no longer be with us. So it's like the memento and a house and a haunted house is sort of the same thing. It contains, you know, all of the other people who have ever passed through it are sort of also kept in the memory of like the bones of the house. You know what I mean? It's not like, like you're not the only person to pass through it. And the house itself is the only thing that's really keeping the memory of the Moore family alive and their ghosts, whether or not we believe it's actually haunted and the ghosts are actually inhabiting it in a literal sense or in a more symbolic sense, it does still haunt us now. I mean, for whatever reason, more than a hundred years later, there are still visitors going back and trying to figure out what happened because, you know, their lives were cut short in a very brutal way. And kind of like what you asked in the beginning of all this is like, why? Why? And there, there is well, no reason. There can't be one. It's too brutal. Kind of connecting it back to Supernatural again, like, you know, it's a, it's a fictional show. So of course, in every episode, they solve the mystery. They're able to like, you know, put it to rest, help it move on, whatever. And then the civilian gets to go back to normal. Everything's great again. But like, no one ever solved this case. There is no Sam and Dean to come in and make it all better. So there is no resolve here. There is no rest. And the house is always going to be scary because of the unknown. Yeah. And and I think kind of what, what Jerry said too about how he always made sure to keep the monster sort of out of sight instead of really obvious and in view where it's scarier when you don't actually know. And in this case... There was no atmosphere building. It's just that we don't know what the mo- we don't know who the monster is. We never got to see who the monster was. All we saw was like the bloody aftermath that he left in his wake once he did or didn't leave. I'm sure for the town itself, generations later, this trauma of like constantly having to think about something so grotesque and unfair and horrible that happened to these children and and the parents is haunting in its own right. So heavy, man. I know. I Yes, heavy. And in fact, maybe we can like switch gears here and metaphorically like hop to a different area or a different type of house or something. Not that the next one I'm sure will be probably equally as dark. But um, so do I get to get a little hint about what next week's house is going to be? Let's see. Okay. So a clue for the house I picked actually is Jerry's Elvis story. Okay. So maybe we're headed a little south to Graceland? I don't know. You'll have to see. Maybe we're going to Calabasas? To Brody's house? Yeah. (laughs) I think that's where he lives. I don't know. That's where his uh, step-siblings do. Calabasas is actually like not a bad guess, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. 
I'll keep thinking about it. But if anyone listening thinks that they know the next house, help me out. Leave us a note in your Apple podcast review and let us know if you have any stories about visiting the Velisca house or share some theories with us, you know, about the haunting stuff or it could be true crime related, whatever. We obviously love talking about it and can't stop. So let's take it to a different venue. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark House. If you're looking for even more spooky stories, head to housebeautiful.com slash darkhouse to check out some of our favorites. Or if you're totally freaked out and need a distraction, you can do what I do and look at pretty interiors to calm down. To unlock all of our exclusive home tours and get the magazine delivered right to your door, sign up for our membership program at housebeautiful.com slash join now.